Well, I was thinking this last week about um, names of people who uh, I remember from my past and um, kind of an evaluation and I realized that um, some of the people that I remember, whose names I remember, um, either did one or two things. They either were a negative impact on my life, uh, or I should say hurtful, or they were real positive. And I'm not talking about people real close to me. I'm just talking about names of people um, that, um, that I can remember who have left their mark. I'll never forget, um, I was in a combination class, uh, seventh and eighth grade. I was in seventh grade, and I had this eighth grader who sat behind me. It was Mrs. King's English class. And, and um, he was pretty big and stocky, much outclassed me. And, and he just loved, when she wasn't looking, just flicked my ears as hard as he could. And I turned around like, why, why do you do that? You know, I don't really have any recourse, and I don't want to be a tattletale. And he'd say, well, you have huge ears. That's why, why I flick your ears. And um, he actually started calling me Baby New Year. You know, what, ever seen the cartoon at Christmas, Baby New Year? And because um, I, I had larger ears for my little head, and it took a while for my head to grow into my ears. And, and uh, you know what? I, I, won't, I forgot his name, but I'll never forget his face, and I'll never forget him because of, of those moments. I'll never forget Baby New Year because of that, because I was Baby New Year in seventh grade. On the other side of the spectrum, you know, there was a, another man who's... who's um, whose life impacted mine, and, and he was never a friend. He was a, a distant person to me, but his life said something to me. And it was the commanding general of Camp Pendleton back in 86 and 87 when I was there. His name was Major General Robert E. Habel. And the reason that I got to see him is because I was part of a ceremonial Marine unit, which uh, oftentimes played for him and listened to him do his speeches. At one particular time, he had my unit over to his ranch house, right, right in Camp Pendleton. And um, just to watch him interact with us, you know, a two-star major general um, rubbing shoulders with little tiny plebes like me, his second, you know, a corporal and even below, and just see his kindness toward his, his troops, that he really did care. He didn't have that air of, of pretentious superiority, though it was clear he had two stars on his shoulder. But he, he, he showed a, a tenderness and compassion for his troops, and his troops loved him. And I suspect that he was a Christian, because on the day he retired, which I still remember, June 20th, 1987, um, he had our, my unit sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, all five verses. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You know, I know the song, right? I mean, out in a, in, on, the, on the parade deck was the unit singing, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And verse 2 and verse 3, it took a lot to memorize all five of those verses. Verse 4, In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. And here I am singing in a secular place out on a parade deck with other Marines about Jesus. And I watched tears come down his eyes because he had served for 42 years in the Marine Corps. Um, a man who was known as being a, 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 someone who cared, kind, um, and, a, and at the same time a great leader. Well, he went on to give a farewell speech, and uh, he, he quoted this line, and he did it in a lot of his, his little speeches that he would do at other men's retirements. And I'll never forget the line. I had to look it up, and it came from a, a 17th century sermon by a man by the name of John Doan. Not Doe, as in John Doe, but John Doan. And the quote went like this, that no man is an island. No man is an island. And 
I, I suppose a military man would know that better than anybody, that um, you can't make it by yourself. That you're completely dependent upon the men who work with you and under you. That is, no man is an island, no man stands by himself. And we know that, just imagining military life, that if you have a unit which is fragmented and divided, well, then it's not going to stand when the pressures of battle hit it. So every man is interdependent and dependent upon the guy right next to him, which is why he kept hammering that theme home over and over again. No man is an island, including this two-star major general. I've never forgotten that quote. No man is an island. And the 21st century church would do really well to let that truth, which is so deeply embedded in the New Testament and in the gospel, sink into our souls. You, as well as I, know, though I don't know, we are always consciously aware of how much it contaminates us, but we live in a very um, individualized culture where people want to think always just for themselves and see themselves as self-sufficient and independent from other people rather than I am dependent. I do need others around me in a very real, not just a doctrinal or abstract way, but we need each other because no one can exist as an island. And that is a theme that if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard over and over again about the importance of having a unified family, um, of being one. It, was, it, 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 it is it's found throughout the teachings of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul dealt with it over and over and over again. It's a major theme in 1 Corinthians, a major theme in Ephesians. And what we're going to look at here is, is, is Philippians. And Paul knows full well that the church exists in, in what you might call a, a situation or context of spiritual warfare with very real and physical opponents. Um, opponents, conflict, and he knows that for the church to not only survive but to thrive, it requires this adoption of the truth that we have to stand as as one. And my prayer is that perhaps this morning, some of the truth of this might penetrate in a way that we get. Because as I said, I, I think we know how to say that it's important for us to be a unified body, but to live it out is much more difficult in our highly individualized culture. And Paul writes this in, in Philippians chapter, end of chapter 1, chapter 2, and I'm just setting us up at this point for the hymn I told you about, because the hymn fits into the context of Paul's concern about our being one. And I want you to just, um, as I read, just take note of How many times he emphasizes the idea of oneness or being on the same page. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Let let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let us live in a way that actually um, is consistent with how Jesus taught us to live and how he himself lived. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. You're standing firm. That's kind of military. You're standing your ground. Um, one spirit with one mind striving, or another translation would be fighting side by side. And I, I kind of suspect that maybe he was thinking of Roman soldiers standing side by side with interlocked shield, depending on one another as to, to stand firm, striving side by side for faith of the gospel and not frightened by any, uh, in anything by your opponents. Notice he says, he recognizes that we have opponents, we have enemies who are clearly against the faith. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. How do we endure suffering if it's not together? Engaged in the same conflict. Another idea of war. Conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And he continues the theme in chapter 2, verse 2. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count uh, others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now he knows what perhaps many of us really don't believe, and that is we exist in a context of spiritual conflict and war with op- opponents. And you see that. The word opponents and conflict and then therefore suffering. Within that, he says that we are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, of the good news, of what Jesus has done for us and how we are to live in light of that. But he says we are to do that as one, over and over and over again. One mind, one love. You know, the same accord, side by side and so forth. Oneness, he just emphasizes it more and more over and over again. That is the, what he is hammering in this passage. But I want you to notice the repetition and the emphasis in particular on the mind. Four times in what I just read, in verse 27, he says, with one mind striving side by side. John chapter 2, verse 2, being of the same mind. End of chapter two, uh, verse 2. Full accord and of one mind. And then um, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, when it comes to the way in which you think about life and, and your attitudes towards one another and how you treat one another, you have to be on the same page. A church that's where the individuals are not on the same page are not a healthy community. You have to be on the same page, the same approach, the same thoughts about how you're supposed to see one another and treat one another. One mind, one approach. And if there's one reason why there's often so much discord in the family of Christ, it's because people aren't on the same page. They're on different pages with different priorities rather than of the same mind. And Paul wants us to, give, to us to have a crystal clear example of exactly what he means of one mind. And so he is going to point his finger at the most sublime, supreme, spectacular example of how we should think about each other in our attitudes and actions by pointing at Jesus. I believe it's this section in verse 6 comes right after this through 11, is one of the most remarkable and vivid expositions and explanations of the work of Jesus that's found in the New Testament. Maybe second only to uh, Colossians chapter 1, although I think that could be argued. A, A vivid example of Jesus as our example. But he does it in a way, and I just want to kind of bracket this for a second. I want you to understand that he's not just pointing to Jesus as an example to help our intellects understand. But he's also providing this, this vivid p- 
picture of Jesus to inspire, to inform and to inspire, to stir up our minds to think more deeply about how we're supposed to treat each other and also to stir up our affections. And that's typical of him. You know, whatever topic he wants to discuss, he's like connects the topic with the glory of Jesus. So to the men, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, men, love your wives as. And then he goes on to paint this amazing picture of how Jesus loves the church as if we're supposed to go, wow. And I think that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Not just get it intellectually like this is how I'm supposed to, but, but, the, but the image of someone who loves his wife that much is so compelling. I actually want to live now and love my wife that way. So it's meant to inform, but also to inspire. And I hope both happen this morning. So let me just take you to these, these verses. I said, as I said, many scholars believe this is a, a, one of the first century hymns that Paul decided to use in his letter. It has rhythm, it has meter, and it has a certain amount of alliteration in the original language. So many believe he's quoting a, a hymn here in which the early Christians would sing or they'd recite in the context of their worship. And when I think about how this thing's shaped, I think of a V. Um, kind of had it on the opening slide. It opens up with um, Jesus' divinity, and then it goes to the very, very bottom of the V with Jesus' crucifixion, and then back up on the other side to Jesus' exaltation. It's kind of just a visual way of thinking about it. Jesus' divinity, his crucifixion, and his exaltation. We're just going to kind of look at this one little corner of, of his divinity. Beginning in verse 6, let me read it for you. Talking about Jesus, that was the person left off at the end of chapter 5, have the same mind in you, which was also in Jesus or Christ Jesus. Now he begins the formal part of this hymn. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is so packed. Uh, they used to distribute MREs in the military where they, you had this dried-out hamburger, you know? It was really disgusting. You're supposed to put water in it. goes like that. Well, these are verses that are kind of like that, only they're a lot better than dried-out hamburger. You're just supposed to stop and let them kind of decompress for a second in your soul. That where this hymn begins to teach us about the mind of Christ and how we're supposed to relate and see each other, he begins with the divinity of Jesus. Uh, or, to put it in my own words, that Jesus possessed divine glory. That first statement, who, though he was in the form of God. The form expresses being. I am in the form of a man, which expresses the nature and essence that I am in being a man. So Paul is starting this thing with an, I think, a crystal clear Belief and statement that Jesus, before Bethlehem, before the virgin birth, or to be more true to my convictions, before the virgin conception, was Almighty God. So you just got to stop there for a moment and just kind of grasp at that a little bit. And it just, please, just allow your imagination to float with me for a second. Because you got to kind of get a sense of what that is, even though we can't fully understand it. What is it like to experience the freedom of full divinity, which he had prior to conception, being conceived in Mary's womb? I mean, all the freedoms of divinity compared to all the limitations of humanity. I had to bust out some concrete just a couple weeks ago. 
I probably spent 20 minutes and I was completely wiped out. Done. And yet, divinity, able to like breathe complete galaxies and worlds into existence and, and without even a drop of sweat, without an ounce of, of being weary or faint, just, and then being able to uphold and sustain it all. You know, if I pulled up one of these chairs and tried to hold it in front of me, I might last three minutes, maybe two. Yet he upholds it all, and that's, that's who he was. Beyond imagination, that kind of power or wisdom. I, I actually have to think through things and put things together. That's how we are. In order to reason our way to something, we have to add thoughts. This plus this equals that and reason everything out. And yet he had unprocessed, full and complete knowledge of everything, both real and potential and hypothetical, all at once. Or to have a person who doesn't know, doesn't know, that's the wrong word, who doesn't experience time like we do. He's not in the past, he's not in the present. He is the ever-eternal I am, who floods both past, present, and future. I don't understand that, but that's part of who he was. Or to have the intrinsic worth that would compel all of heaven to worship you constantly. Not because they were obliged to, but because they were compelled to by the worth of your own being. The people who don't worship God today are in an unnatural state. When you know, like heaven sees the Lord and they just fall in their faces, they just say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty because he's worthy of that kind of, kind of worship. Well, that's the Son of God. That's Jesus' preconception. The, the object of the attention of heaven, eyes of, of, of uh, the angelic beings with eyes covered because of the piercing light of the glory of Christ, hovering before him and around him, singing his praises over and over again. Like, I don't care how brilliant or how much imagination you have. You collect the imaginative thoughts as what it would be like to be God over the collective experience of a thousand generations, and you still would be just groping and grasping at who Jesus was pre-conception. And that's kind of the idea, but that's where he starts. Um, Though he was in the form of God. You and I, we don't start there by by nature of the fact that we're sinners, um, that apart from Jesus, you and I, we don't even deserve the air we breathe, the job we have, the relationships we have, the friendships we have. He is deserving of all things. And we are not. And yet, look what happens next in this hymn. That's where he starts. That he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he didn't grab at it or scrape at it the way we oftentimes do um, with our things so as to maximize our, our sense of power and position. And I admit, it's hard for my mind to get around that until I started uh, making connections with Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. Back at the very beginning, God created Adam in the form of man. And Adam listened to that evil voice, and he reached for something that was beyond his place. He grasped at something. He grasped at a knowledge of good and evil that was not his to experience and was prohibited. He was grasping at something that would make him like who? You can say it out loud. There you go. A little bit of participation here. Wake you up. 
Um, he was grasping at, at God. The devil did the same thing. He grasped at the throne beyond his place. And that's part of the core of, of our human brokenness is grasping for things that God has not granted for us. It is a way of grasping at glory, the self-promotion, self-exaltation. And we usually do it by amassing things, finances, labels, um, pieces of paper, initials behind our name, you name it, the beautiful girl on our, on our arm, whatever it is. These are things that we try to amass and reach for this thing we call God. It's part of what's broken in humanity. And you notice Jesus doesn't do that. I mean, the irony is pretty clear. Adam, in the form of man, reaches for God. And Jesus, who is in the form of God, willingly becomes man. That is the heart of God, and what Christ does is diametrically opposite of what humans do in their sinfulness. He steps down, he doesn't step up. So where we have this in, 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 in your marriage, in your families, or in a church, or you have Christians who are positioning themselves for a place of significance or power, or through politicking and topic, uh, talking to people in ways that are unloving, trying to amass a force so as to get your way, that is fundamentally flowing in the wrong direction. That's not the mind of Christ. He didn't grasp at those things. Or to put it in my own words, that Jesus showed a selfless attitude towards position and status. And have to grab at it. And we live in a power-grabbing world. You're encouraged to grab the next rung of the ladder. Go for it. You deserve it. Jesus says, you know what? I am going to... I... I... I am not going to grab hold of God, divinity, equality with my Father. He showed selfless attitude towards position and power. That's, we've been studying David. David did the same thing. and refused to grab. Though he had numerous opportunities to take a crown, he didn't. Didn't grab at power. And that is a, has to be a definitive mark of what it means to be a believer in every walk of life. Whether you're a manager, or you're a dad, you're a mom, um, wherever you're at, is you don't grab at it, but rather willing to, just to show kind of that selfless attitude um, of letting go of it. Um, but he, he, he goes one step further, and this is the last part of what we're going to look at this morning. And that is, words after the, in verse 7, it says, but. So he didn't grasp like Adam did, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, the word that's translated servant right there is actually the word for common slave. In the first century, slaves had little to no rights at all. You know, no right to vote. No right to own personal property. And you just see this. Where we started in the hymn is he's the sovereign of heaven. And, and where he's at now is he is a slave without rights. He did that voluntarily. He started as sovereign and yet it says that 
he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. The fact that he emptied himself means that he left his position, laid aside his glory, didn't lay aside his divinity, can't do that. But he did relinquish the free use of his attributes, which is why at times you find in the Gospels he doesn't know things like the day of his coming. And he took upon himself the limitations of what we know as being human. Living in a body with, um, that, that felt all the ravages of this curse, cursed world of feeling tired and weary and emotionally tired, feeling heartbroken over someone who betrays you or someone who doesn't believe or someone who's arrogant. He felt the full and complete weight of what it means to be a human ravaged in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. That's what he did. And he did it voluntarily. That's that he emptied himself. No one shoved him out of heaven. No one coerced him out of heaven or you know, shoved him off his throne. He volunteered for the position. He volunteered to make that infinite step from top to bottom. Voluntary. You know, when I, when I think about that, I, immediately my mind goes to contrasts. Um, there are movies that stand out over the years as better movies than others. Like one, I remember watching back, I think it was seminary when I watched Ben-Hur. Remember Ben-Hur? Charlton Heston. Apparently back in the day, it was one of the most expensive movies because of all the elaborate sets and so forth. Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston, you know? He starts off as a, as a Jewish prince, and then through a series of events, he ends up a slave in a, in a galley and rowing. And then he has to work hard to make himself, get himself back to the top. You have another movie, a little more recent, Gladiator. Maximus, the great general of the legions of the north who, who destroys the German hordes and, and um, ends up being forced to become a slave to fight for the profits of another man and has to work his way back up. Both men were great. Both men became slaves, but both men were forced into it, and Jesus chose. Like, he chose it, and he chose it for for you, and then he chose it for me. It's, he chose it in love and in grace to, to, to care for the needs of people who, who were so infinitely beneath him. Sinful, selfish, self-centered. You talk about going from high to low to serve the needs of people who don't deserve it. That is Parkway Community Church, the mind of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus, and it's the heart of God both in terms of our attitudes towards power, position, and one another, as well as how we treat one another to actually come to a place, this is the same page that we all have to be on, that your needs at this moment are more important than mine. You first, me second. That's what he says. Consider the interests of others as more significant than yours. I'll tell you what, that's, that's easy to say. It's harder to live because we live in... I don't know that I can judge this because I haven't lived over, you know, a long time. But sure seems like we live in one of the most self-indulgent, narcissistic cultures of all time. Where it's me first all the time. And to be a Christian that goes the opposite direction is like a salmon trying to swim up a, a gushing fire hydrant, you know? It's just trying to live differently. And it's so easy to be contaminated by the air that we breathe that's saying you deserve it and you're number one and you should be number one in your marriage and you should be number one in your family and then pushing that agenda which is fundamentally unchristian and unloving. 
And Jesus shows us such a different way to go. He swam so hard against the stream, coming from sovereign to slave to care for our needs. And that's where you see Christianity alive, is when people live like that and have that kind of a mind. And if everybody in here had this same mind on the same page, there wouldn't be any cracks in this church family or in the marriages, provided both parties were committed to the same thing. So it means to have the mind of Christ, you know, voluntarily became a human slave to take the lower position. I'll tell you what, this is something that, that I have to, uh, you know, I'm a sinner just like you with my own selfish tendencies and, and self-centeredness like you. And I struggle in ways that maybe you don't and you struggle in ways that I don't. And to, to learn to be on the same page and by the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God to learn what it means to put others first. And that it's not about me. Um, example. I apologize to my small group in the first service. I apologize to those who are here second service. I love my small group and I love everyone in it. And we've talked about this, so they're not going to be surprised by what I'm about to say. But there are times when I come home on a Wednesday where I am exhausted. Mentally, emotionally, and physically. And I face this dilemma in my soul. I really would like to stay home and rest. Or I could expend more energy and go to small group. I know I'm not the only one that feels that. Some of you felt that way this morning. <laughs> Should I hit snooze because I've had a hard day or week? And just sleep in, take the Sunday off? Or do I get up and expend the emotional energy to go and listen to Dan Decker go on and on and on? I tell you, in those moments, I have to ask myself the question, okay, Dan, why do you go to small group? Is it about you or is it about others? Is it about you or is it about others? When you come to church, the gathering together of believers for worship, is it primarily about you, or is it about others? When we try to gather for prayer, is this, do we gather because it's primarily about you or about others? And I stop myself in that moment, and I have to ask myself the, the Jesus question. Well, um, who am I doing this for? And, and here's the deal, is that when I say no to self and yes to others, when I say no to laziness, there's a place for rest. But when I say no to the laziness of the self, I'm just going to rest, and I say yes to I'll go. You know what the Lord does every single time? He fills my cup. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I know some of you, you struggle to go to things. Once you go, you're like, why did I even struggle to come here? I needed this so badly that I am not an island. I'm supposed to be ministered to by others and to walk away filled and knowing that when you say no to self in first place and you say yes to others, God does this amazing filling in your life. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So each of us, in our own way, in our own place of life, have to ask ourselves those questions. Am I on the same page in my marriage? 
Maybe that means when you come home, you say no to yourself and the remote and the basketball game, and you say yes to getting up and helping with the dishes. Or it's, you know, I'm going to say, I have to say no to the boss this time. He wants me to work overtime 80 hours, and my son has a baseball game, and I know this might get me more money, but I'm going to say no to this. I'm going to say yes to baseball. In those moments, to asking the question and then answering no to the self and yes to others. And watch how God fills our lives and unites us as a family. I think a good place to just end here is just to ask you. You know, oftentimes at the, at the crux of conflict is, is really bad sounds. No, I just... Um, is one or both parties vying for power. And that's not the way of Jesus. So take a moment and just analyze your own life in light of this and ask yourself, hey, am I moving this Jesus direction? Am I swimming upstream against the current or am I going with the current? Um, Because this is distinctively Christian and I think what it means to actually live out our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Just take a moment of reflection and then John will lead us in worship.